Welcome to Assignment, the official podcast of the Mountain View MFA program at Southern New Hampshire University. I'm Rebecca Dragon. Alongside Jillian Kemmerer. Welcome to Assignment Podcast, our very first episode. This has been a long time coming. We've been talking about it for a while, Jillian. We've been coordinating our schedules and we're finally here. I'm really excited to sit down and do this with you. Yeah, likewise. And it's just so much fun to be here chatting with you. And I know that's not the only excuse for why we started a podcast to get to catch up with each other, but I'd love to hear a bit more about why you pushed this because this is really your brainchild, the assignment pod. Well, first of all, I want to say it's a real benefit to hang out with you like this. It forces us to talk more. And I, you know, we enjoy each other a lot. So it's we do <laughs> to know you in the program. Um, I really, so I started helping to edit Assignment Magazine, which is our literary magazine. And um, I really realized that there is this opportunity to get the works of our writers out in a different way, in a different way to consume these works. Um, I know for me as a really busy mom, I often am not sitting down and reading something on my computer. I'm much more likely to pop in the earbuds while I'm washing dishes and listen to something. So I've really utilized in my in my writing education, I really utilize audiobooks and podcasts a lot um, to help me continuously get that exposure to these beautiful words, these beautiful works in a way that I just, I can't sit down and do most of the time. And so I proposed it uh, and then asked you if you'd come and join me and here we are. So... Yeah. And I totally agree with you. Like as a journalist, so rarely do we do readings, right? So the first exposure I had to authors reading their own works was at the Mountain View MFA program. And you just feel the work completely differently. And I know, for example, today we're going to be reading others' works, but the fact that we'll not only get to talk about writing and introduce our faculty, but also hear authors read in their own words, I found that to be a really moving experience and one that I realize we don't get enough of. I mean, a lot of authors don't read their own audiobooks. So it's just a really special opportunity to not just talk about writing, but also to hear an author speak their words, because I think that's, that's an experience that's just completely incomparable, particularly when you have a favorite writer. It's such a privilege to hear them reading their own stuff. And, and I loved that part of the MFA program so far. Yeah, I, I, you know, when you say that, I really think about it. It's been very transformative to me as well. Um, when you read words statically on a page uh, versus hearing them spoken, um, and then in contrast with the reaction of the people in the audience sitting around you listening to those words. You know, my background is in theater. So for me, that alchemy between the speaker and the audience has always been an, like this really exciting magic for me. And... Um, uh, it's been that's been really transformative for me as well. Also, getting up to read my own words, which is very different than performing a script, uh, words of someone else. Um, so I'm really excited to be able to do this. Uh, well, let's talk about it. Why did you seek this program, uh, Mountain View MFA in particular? So I have a funny way into this program. I would say it's more that on some level, the Mountain View experience sought me because I decided to do the MFA in a very tumultuous point in my life. I was a journalist who for the past four or five years has been operating back and forth between Russia covering the Russian Hockey League, which is called the KHL, the Continental Hockey League, 
And my latest posting, I was actually working with the Russian national ice hockey team ahead of the Beijing 2022 Olympics. And I was living in St. Petersburg. And the end of February, early March, the escalated invasion of Ukraine changed absolutely everything for me um, within a, a seven to 10 day period. I saw all the dreams that I felt that I was working toward, which was bringing the East and West closer together through a common language of hockey sort of disintegrate before my eyes. And I was no longer able to safely exist there. So fast forward to March 4th, 2022, I'm in the back of a van going over the border with Finland, leaving behind my home, all my stuff, this dream, this career that I had built. And really feeling completely terrified of what was next and heartbroken and grief-stricken. And I'm not going to lie, I spent about two months basically under my covers reading every Sarah J. Mass fantasy book known to man and eating Pringles and not really talking to the outside <laughs> world because, you know, I, I didn't even know how to interact with the outside world. I had just suffered such a profound loss and with the rest of the world was grieving what was happening in, in Ukraine and also seeing the other side of what was happening to some of my terrified Russian friends on the ground too. And Keith Gave, who is an alum of the Mountain View program, very successful, is now on his third book, um, but wrote his first book, The Russian Five, through the Mountain View program, um, just kind of kept reaching out his hand because ironically, Keith wrote a book about helping the first two players to defect as members of the Russian Five of the Detroit Red Wings. Um, back in 1989, he literally showed up in Helsinki with letters he had written in Russian and slipped them to these players, even in front of the KGB minders' eyes, encouraging them to defect for the NHL and, and for the United States. And it ultimately catalyzed this movement of Soviet and later Russian players over to the NHL. And those players are the ones that I grew up watching that made me enamored with Russian hockey and eventually led me there. So the fact that it came full circle and Keith became a mentor of mine was a privilege in and of itself. But, you know, when a lot of other people, I think, kind of gave up on me in that, that time when I just sort of retreated inside of myself, he just kept reaching out his hand and saying, you have a story to tell. And I know the perfect place for you to tell it where you'll feel welcome and supported and you'll have access to these great faculty members who will help you to mitigate the sensitivities of this story and tell them in the right way and to be more vulnerable and and to put a bow on this reporting experience that you had in Russia that you may never have again and that another person may not have the privilege of having again. So it was really Keith pulling and pulling and pulling and I'm so grateful that he did because ultimately I applied for the MFA and got in and I think Aside from the amazing experience of doing the MFA, it's been a really cathartic experience for me to be able to put some of this joy and grief and, and these questions and, and all of this on paper and begin to wrestle with it. So I'm just so grateful for the program. It's been more than just an MFA for me. It's kind of been like a new lease on life. Um, but I'm also curious about you too, because you've got this whole other life going on. You've got this beautiful family. You, you're doing so much for the, the world of adoption, but you decided to pursue an MFA. Kind of what brought you to this in this point of your life? Um, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, that's the short answer. But basically, you know, I, I'm not going to be hoping and say, I have been writing my whole life, you know, since I was a child. <laughs> but, because I haven't, I have not been writing my entire life, you know, I, but I have had kind of a love affair with, with words and story, uh, my whole life. You know, that's why I pursued theater, um, before I had children and a family, you know, I was working at a talent agency in Manhattan and, you know, getting to see lots of great theater. And I was doing 
voiceover work and, you know, and, but then I, I did the thing that lots of people do and started a family. And um, I had three kids very quickly, one after the other, and um, spent the very early years of their childhood homeschooling them. Um, And I created this very large homeschool community uh, where all the parents shared teaching. We also outsourced professional teachers, things that we weren't adept at teaching. And I really, and I started teaching acting. And I started teaching monologue writing um, and started getting those gigs outside of the homeschool community as well. And then come 2016, and I had an incredibly life-changing event, which is I unlocked the secret of myself and I spit in a tube and I sent it to Ancestry and um, found my entire biological family who until wow. that moment had been a complete mystery to me. Um, aside from some non-identifying information. I met everyone. I met my mother, my father. I met cousins, uncles, aunts. I met my three full biological siblings, like something I never thought would happen. And I mean, if you can imagine never understanding your own context, your own personal context, and then all of a sudden being fully immersed in it, you can imagine that took over most of the working parts of my brain and psyche. And so I started just reading everything about from other adoptees. And I started, I had a lot to say. I was discovering a lot about myself. I was learning words for things that I had felt my whole life and never had words for, didn't know other people felt this way. And so I really started writing a lot and I created a platform called Adoption Beyond Myths, Misgivings and Mayhem. And I started just putting up my essays online and um, realized there were a lot of other adoptees like me who wanted to get their words out there as well, but didn't often didn't want to do it publicly. So I started offering my platform to other adoptees and hosting their works, often under pseudonyms um, uh, or someone who didn't want to manage a big platform. And then I started writing a book. I'm like, I can write a book, I think. I'll write a book. And so I started interviewing hundreds of fellow adult adoptees um, about common mythology around the experience of adoptees within, you know, we're the only ones that live adoption fully from start to finish. And um, I wrote that book. It sits upon my hard drive, lonely. (laughs) I don't, and I thought, you know what? I need to kind of, I love doing this. I'm going to, but I know I need some, some help maybe. <laughs> and and um, so I submitted, my submission to get into Mountain View MFA was 30 pages of adoption. Wow. <laughs> Adoptee. And, and as someone I, who knows you're writing now, what a, what a divergent path it's taken. I, it's so yeah. interesting. I am, I even apologized, I believe at the beginning of my submission, I said, I really intended to send you, this is 30 pages eight to send, right? And I said, I really intended to send you a more comprehensive view of what I know I'm capable of writing. I used to teach monologue writing, but I'm sorry, you're going to learn a lot. And so I sent them 30 <laughs> pages, maybe six essays and a chapter from my book. And um, I got in and I spent the first semester at Mountain View thinking this is what I was writing. Like I knew the name of my project. I knew what it was going to look like. I had it outlined. You know, I had an outline. I came here with an outline. And by the end of the first semester, I realized that I just wanted to write. 
um, that yeah. I loved writing and I wanted to tap back into my theater background and I wanted to find that alchemy again and create that bridge between these two disciplines. And so I switched to fiction. And now I'm writing insane stories about like cat, like cat in a dystopian age and, <laughs> you know, a, a man in Poundle, Vermont who thinks he's a king. And, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun. So I love that. And I can't wait. I mean, I don't want to spoil future podcasts, but I know you're going to read or maybe I'm going to read some of your work and vice versa. So it'll be so much fun to, to hear the diverse swath because the one thing that I find so interesting about this program is you have someone writing about absolutely anything. Like when you walk into this program, yes. you could be reading a tale of Kings and Dragons, or you could be reading a nonfiction book about activism in South America, or, I mean, it just runs the gamut and it's such a cool cool opportunity to be exposed to so many different genres. I, I, I find it hilarious that you, you're a sports writer. I mean, I sit at my son's <laughs> basketball games and have to ask the people sitting around me like, what happened? What was that? What, why was, I don't understand. What's a foul? Why did that? You know, and so here we are, you and I, and we bonded so well. And I'm writing about my dystopian cat and you're writing you know, about <laughs> Russian hockey. Um, and I mean, I've, I've read peer pieces about vampires. I've read um, story, lots of memoir. You know, I've read a bunch of different memoirs, really profound and moving memoirs. Um, I, and a lot of amazing stories. I, one of my favorite uh, cohort members um, just wrote a story about a woman who works at a business that treats adults like babies for money. I just thought it was amazing. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And um, anyway, yeah, it's, you're right. It's a, it's a really, the, the wide diversity of genres that people are working within and the backgrounds of where they come from just makes it a really exciting place to be. Yeah, completely. So, I mean, I will tell you what my first impressions have been of this program, but it's going to be even more interesting to hear yours because you, I mean, I even hate to say this because it's going to break my heart, but you're going to be an alum by the end of next residency, which is crazy. I know. I won't even be at next residency. That's right. Only at the end to graduate. At the end to graduate. Um, And so like, I mean... I walked into this program thinking, okay, Keith Gabe says I have a story to write, so I'm going to go write it and I'm going to sit in my hole and send 30 <laughs> pages of written work every six weeks and, you know, be sad and that's going to be the end of it. <laughs> and what what's crazy is that I, what I didn't expect going in and what I found is the insane benefit of the writing community that you get coming into this program. Like I truly had no expectations. I threw this application in last minute. I showed up at residency, not even really fully comprehending what an MFA was, just knowing that I wanted to write and I wanted mentorship. And I get there and I meet the most amazing people imaginable, you know, cohort members who are writing Greek mythological retellings and really profound memoirs. And every person is so invested in helping you grow too. And and there's just sort of a no judgment zone that immediately starts up and you feel so welcome. And the faculty members are a big part of that too, right? Like I, I've always felt really supported by the faculty and everyone seems so eager to dive into your work and they get to know it on a really intimate scale because you, if you choose a mentor, they work with you for an entire semester one-on-one evaluating that work. But just the support has been 
insane and so beyond my expectations. And as a journalist who's used to an editor being like, F you, I deleted this. This is the end of it. Like, you know, take, take it or leave it, but really take it because you have no choice. Having like the opportunity to discuss work and hear how people react to it. And then being able to take or leave that feedback. It's been, it's been really, really cool. But um, I want to hear the reflections of our now elder stateswoman oh, in this program. I am your elder anyway. Remember, <laughs> remember that. Um, so, you know, again, like I, I, when I came in, I remember we were still online because it was the pandemic. And so oh I had two residencies fully remote. Um, and I was almost wondering, how are they going to make this have a community feeling? And they really did. It was, it was amazing. And I immediately made friends with several people in my cohort. And those, those first connections that I made were really important. And as I said, I've really pivoted what I've done. Every semester, I've gone in thinking, I know what I'm doing. And then by the end, I'm like, eh, I'm going to do something else now. <laughs> you know? and, totally. um, and I guess one thing, my impressions looking back on it is that I wish that I... Although wishing, wishing doesn't really mean anything. But I, I do wish that I had come in not holding so tightly to what I thought I was going to write, you know? And I now, you've heard me say it. I scream it to people that are coming in. I'm like, I know you think you know what you're going to write. Don't think you don't. Because yeah. what happens in this process and with these people, especially our faculty, is are so supportive. Like, and again, they also represent such a diverse, you know, collection of genres, um, just the way they work with people. There's someone for everyone there. And I think that, you know, just to, to be there and to really immerse yourself into what is offered into that community, into, into that process, it's, it's, it's so transformative. It's been amazing. And I actually, I'm, I'm trying to figure out some way that I can get back there again. <laughs> like, you know, I'm really <laughs> sad that there are no more residencies for me. I'm trying to figure out, oh, can I, can I get a job at, at SNHU? And can I Please do. My, come back and get another MFA? Or, you know, um, <laughs> um, but also I've learned through this time, the connections that I've made with people in my cohort, and even outside of my cohort, you and I are obviously not in the same cohort. Um, we've, we meet on the side now and have our own peer workshops. Um, we share resources with each other. My whole world has been opened up to this much larger world of writing that I don't think I would have ever been able to catch on my own. Completely. I agree with you totally. And I love that tip about not coming in, holding on too tightly to your project. I did have a project in mind when I came in and I, I'm still working on that project with the the detours it's taken and the shape change has been so profound. And I can't believe what I'm writing now versus what I came in writing. And in fact, it's only been a semester and change for me. But when I read what I submitted to get into the program and what I'm writing now, I'm almost embarrassed of what I submitted to get in because I've changed so much in that short course of time. Oh, I am embarrassed to read what I submitted to get in. And it also reminds me, it's a good reminder when I'm in a peer workshop and I'm reading someone's work, um, you know, and I think, oh, I don't, I don't know how to comment on this. And then I'll watch. I've watched so many students come in with what I deemed to be not a good piece of writing. And I've watched them come in and through the peer and faculty process, completely transform their view of it, their self-view of themselves as a writer. And then by the end, revise into something that 
is is completely salable, consumable, entertaining, all of the things that, you know, perhaps it wasn't before. So in my opinion, this process really works. Um, it's been it's been a joy. And I would say too, the alumni of this program are the perfect examples of how well this program works. Because when I think about some of our most profound alumni, whether we're talking about Nadia Awusu, whose memoir Aftershocks winds up on Obama's book of the year list, or Keith Gave, as I mentioned, who's written three, we've got John Virtue. We have so many alumni who have won prestigious awards and published multiple books. It's a testament to what they took from the MFA. You know, they're going out into the world without that every six weeks, you know, detailed pages and pages of feedback from faculty, but are still able to replicate the work. And that's a testament to what you learn. It's not just about being handheld through the the years of the MFA, but what you take away from the experience of being critiqued and workshopped. And and I think it's just such a special facet of this program um, that it continues to produce really great writers in all genres, not just one. Well, speaking of alumni, um, both of us have brought some words from an alumni from one of their published pieces. And um, I'm hoping you'll start. We just talked about Keith Gave. Um, You have something from him that you'd like to share and maybe a little bit more about him that you have. Totally. So I know that our our listeners can't see this, but I have my heavily annotated copy of Keith Gave's (laughs) Russian Five the book he wrote in the program. Um, and I actually studied it as one of my books for critique in my first semester, which was such an honor um, to be able to take my mentor's book and look at it from a literary lens, which I never had before. Oh, um, wow. I had always looked at it from a reporting lens. So looking at how he constructed this book was a really rich exercise. So before I Did talk you about that, your essay. Did you send me I did the not, essay you wrote I'm about too it? nervous. I think I don't want him to think like, oh, here's she's sitting here high and mighty MFA student critiquing <laughs> my published work. I'm too embarrassed, but maybe after this I will. He's probably okay. Me. <laughs> after he listens to this. That's right. <laughs> um, so Keith gave this is such a fascinating story, was actually a Russian linguist for the NSA who spied on the Soviets, eavesdropped on them from an East Berlin spy station or West Berlin spy station. And he is sitting there listening to them talk and is transmitting back to the U.S. And and so this is his first career. And then after he finishes military service, he becomes a sports writer in Detroit. And ironically, if we're looking at the 70s and 80s as the Soviet teams go on the rise um, and the Soviet hockey program has this magnificent run from literally nothing because the program began decades prior with virtually no experience in the hockey competitive space. And as we're getting into the 70s and 80s, right, the NHL is looking at these players and it's really hard to imagine them playing on NHL teams and yet they are perfectly capable of playing, but it's the political sphere that makes it impossible. So as we start to venture closer to the fall of the Soviet Union, the Detroit Red Wings get a little bit more daring and they actually decide to draft a couple of players who are spectacularly talented, but who a lot of other teams wouldn't touch because they fear that they can't actually get these players to come over because they'd have to defect, right? The Soviet Union is not just going to throw their players to the NHL. So QN Keith Gave, who the Detroit Red Wings know speaks Russian, uh, they ask him to write a letter to two players, Sergei Fyodorov, who, for Americans, Sergei Fedorov, and Vladimir Konstantinov, these two budding stars on the Soviet national team. And they ask him to write these letters in Russian, basically saying, 
the Detroit Red Wings will help you to defect if you choose to defect and, you know, laying it all out. And Keith Gave has to talk his way into a locker room in Helsinki at a, at a national team exhibition game and hand over these letters in front of the KGB minders, making it look like he's just extending them a gift. And he basically breaks the news to these players that they have been drafted and that the Red Wings are going to do whatever it takes to get them. And both of these players do defect in these very daring stories. So Keith Gave is not just the author of The Russian Five, he's very much the catalyst. But when I was analyzing the book for the MFA, what I noticed is that his use of first-person narrative is extremely measured. This is very much Keith's story to tell, and yet he drops in and out of it very liberally. And in fact, he's almost never in it aside from the beginning and the end and a few places in between. So when he pops back into the story, it's really memorable. And I want to read a little piece um, when he goes back to the small town that Slava Kozlov is from, who's one of the members of the Russian Five. And he goes to visit Slava's home. um, And his father, Anatoly, is standing in the backyard showing Keith where Slava became the player he was, which is now a two-time Stanley Cup champion. Slava's now coaching in Russia and I would argue has a Hall of Fame case, although he's not been placed there yet. I think he's been sort of underrated. Um, And this is one of the moments Keith decides to hold her hand. And I'm going to try very hard not to cry while reading this because I cried while reading it the first time I read it. Anatoly, Slava's father, spoke of how proud he was that Slava was playing in North America in the best hockey league in the world. He was grateful that his son was so well-received like the other Russian players by the people of Detroit. Then he took me by the arm and led me outside on that cold gray November day. Winter was coming fast as usual to this part of Russia. We walked to the side of the two-story house behind a tall fence separating it from the crumbling road. Anatoly, with gestures as much as words, pointed toward a low-lying space between two apple trees. The space wasn't very big, maybe 15 by 10 feet tops, but it was big enough. For when the autumn rains came and the ground froze, they created a smooth little sheet of ice. Perfect, as Anatoly Kozlov described it when he smiled and said, here, right here, this is where Slava learned to skate. I smiled too at the thought of a little boy with blades beneath his feet falling down, getting back up and trying again, laughing at the sheer joy of gliding along that little patch of frozen rainwater. Soon the father would hand his son a wooden stick and a black hard rubber puck, A whole new world opened to the boy and his joy grew exponentially. I could see it in my mind's eye. Here, right here, I thought to myself, standing near that low-lying, freezing ground, just waiting to cradle a decent rainfall, a star was born. Oh, the little little frozen puddle. I just... (sighs) I see it the just little... breaks me. It breaks <laughs> me. I, I remember reading it for the first time and thinking, thank you, Keith, for holding our hand in that scene because the language barrier has always made it so that we don't fully understand their stories. And by humanizing this story, I just, it connected me to Slava in a way that I had never been connected before. It made me feel as if, you know, his his origin story could be the same as any other child growing up in a backyard dreaming of playing in the NHL. And, and I just thought it was a moment not only of sporting import, but of, of diplomacy. And I, I love Keith for doing that, for going there, for braving, you know, at the time when he was traveling back and forth, it was still, you know, the sort of wild west of Russia in the 90s and whatnot. And, and for doing that and for reaching out his hand, I just, I admire Keith so much. And I love that he chose to drop into first person for that scene. I, 
Thank you for reading. I've, I've always found it very interesting. We also have the Russian connection, you and I, which we don't need to get into right now. <laughs> no. But I, you know, that that the story of, I can just imagine Slava outside of the Dacha, you know, yeah. <laughs> on the frozen puddle. I just, thank you for reading that. Well, I'll jump into um, Please. my reading. Um, what I find interesting about this is that, so... This is from an alumni. She just graduated. Her name is Courtney Young. And she is to me that I am to you. That that distance uh, apart. Yes. apart in the program. And also, um, she immediately befriended me when I walked into the program. Like we, you know, she was very warm and welcoming. Um, she actually used to be an editor on Assignment Magazine as well. She was a student editor. And so she graduated in the fall. She has... The reason why I wanted to read her work is because she has a fascinating story. Same as Keith. Um, hers is a very different story. <laughs> but her, her life story is just absolutely fascinating. And, you know, there's a lot of... You know, whenever, whenever someone has a really fascinating life story, people will often say to this person, oh, you should write a book. I know people say that to me every time I say I'm in reunion and adoption. Oh, well, you should write a book. You should write a book. But not everyone can write a book. Not everyone has the chops to write the book or the desire or the wherewithal to write a book. Um, Courtney Young has the chops to write a book. <laughs> and um, <laughs> her, her strong descriptions and the way she can just put you in place in the place that she's in in that story has always moved me enormously. So um, I actually read her bio. I'm going to read her bio first. Um, so yeah, I'll, please. I'll get to know Courtney a bit and then I'm going to go into her piece um, that was published in the LA Review. Uh, so she's just wow. out of the program and she's placing her work in various places. It, this was also... It was published somewhere else. Let me... When we get to that, I will read that part. So Courtney Elizabeth Young is a 32-year-old photographer, author, and professional dog walker and a two-time triple negative breast cancer champion. She holds an MFA through SNHU and has lived and backpacked six continents and over 30 countries alone so far, and she isn't done yet. She is a proud owner of both the DR, D4, and MAOA gene, and she has lived out loud her wild ride through life on everything from cocaine to camels and from crocodiles to cancer. So her piece was published in, um, I believe it's called Baron Magazine, and the piece is called Exsanguination. And I remember she read from this before it was ever published. And I, I asked her for this um, because this reading that she did um, was so memorable to me. Two weeks ago, I was able to make it home, but I bled the entire way. The day after, I would clean the seat of my car, but that night, I would walk bow-legged up to my apartment, grimace through grit teeth, sit in the bathtub until I stopped bleeding, stopped crying. There was the glass of wine at dinner, the hand on my thigh to support himself when I made him double over in laughter, the typical touch that by now I know doubles as another way to cop a feel but one that doesn't stop when the laughter does. There is the hand that keeps sliding up, crooning into my ear the warm threat. I didn't pay for you to make me laugh. He will then tell me what he paid me for, and he will pay the tab. And when he takes me home with him, I will learn some men, men unlike John, have to pay for what they want to do to women. 
And my best friend will help me out of the bath, put me in my favorite sweater, let me cry into her lap, where my speech will stop and start and then stutter into truth. I don't know if, if I'm going to heal down there. I don't know if I'll ever be the same. And my best friend, because she is my best friend, will not ask me what happened, will not click her tongue at me, will not wonder aloud why I do the things I do, if she is not also going to wonder aloud why men do the things that they do, like hurt women. The fracking of sacred ground. Instead, she will run her fingers through my hair, saying softly, you can always heal. What she does not say is if I will be the same, because she doesn't want to lie to me. But as her hand glides through your hair again, she will say, I know that there are some men, nice, good, kind men out there who would still be glad to just spend time with you, laugh with you, who will treat you with kindness. And I will nod and my breath will slow and my hysteria-induced hiccups will subside. And I believe her because she is right, because I found someone like John. John, who comes out of the bathroom, whom I smile at when I kick off my high heels before standing to straighten his tie, kiss his cheek and tell him goodbye. He puts on his watch, turns the collar of his windbreaker up. You let me know how tomorrow goes. He raises his eyebrow and looks at me intently, padding for his keys in his jacket pocket. I have an ultrasound tomorrow for a lump in my breast. I tried to hide, but a lump in your breast is hard to hide when you're a prostitute. I wave him off. I'm sure it'll be fine. He gives me a look as if to say, I mean it, young lady. Okay, I will love, I soften, I promise, and I smile. He nods once and the door clicks as he leaves. I lie back down to wait the 10 minutes. I always wait before leaving too. I turn on my side and in the silence of the room, I strain to hear my own heart beating. It is soft, quiet, lacking the impact that purpose carries purpose like a mortgage and a marriage and kids and clients, like the bird wings that beat right outside the window that sink with my pulse for a moment in time. Each of us on our own way, pulling ourselves shallow gasp by shallow gasp, weakened grasp by weakened grasp, bit by tiny bit further into the world, more innate than learned, more impulse than earned, more treble than bass, less like a drum and more like a flickering, less like a thrum and more like a ticking, ticking, like a clock. Wow. Wow. I remember Rebecca when she read, um, and she read a piece that was further along in her cancer journey as she was going through treatments at graduation and just being so moved um, in the way that she expresses herself. That was such an incredible piece, that line about hiding a lump in your breast when you are a prostitute. I mean, God, that's, it just makes you sink right in. And I, I just think her story is so remarkable and you did such a good job reading that. But wow, I'm so happy to hear she's getting placed. She deserves it. And she, she, went, she found out she had to go back into treatment right upon um, being accepted to the program. And she opted to continue with the program instead wow. of taking the time. So she really has been through the ringer through this whole thing and... Um, you know, the fire. She's been through the fire <laughs> through this whole thing. And now she's getting published and she's working and she's she's querying and you know, good for Courtney. I just got to see her in person recently, actually. It was, you know, again, these friends, these friendships that we make in this program are incredibly real and I can see them lasting through the rest of life. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm so excited that through this podcast, we will get to introduce more alumni, more current students, more faculty. I am so excited for more readings. This has been so much fun and I, I can't wait to do it again. Should we do this again sometime? <laughs> I, I know. We'll have to plan the whole event though. Um, <laughs> I can't wait. Um, I can't wait. I can't. Well, let's, we'll see you at the next one then. Sounds good. good talking to you. It was great talking to you too. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to Assignment Pod. We were thrilled to have you. Do not forget to subscribe so you can catch all the latest episodes. We'll be coming out with a few more, I promise. You can find the latest works of Assignment Magazine on our website, www.assignmentmag.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at assignment underscore mag and check out the official Twitter of the Mountain View MFA program at SNHU, which is just at Mountain View MFA. 